Grace and peace and welcome to the parking lot at Cokesbury United Methodist Church on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. Hopefully the rain holds off for us. Uh, I was so hopeful that when we gathered together last month that a month later it would be quite a bit cooler than it was last month. And finally the Lord answered by putting clouds in front of the sun. When I stood here about an hour and a half ago to set up, I was sweating so much. I was grateful to know I was going to lose 10 pounds just from wearing all black and standing up here in front of you today. Uh, again, thank you for joining us for this service, this drive-in service of word and sacrament. Hopefully everybody can hear me in all of your different cars. Uh, just a few announcements about our service. We're going to have some scripture, some prayers, a brief homily, and then communion. We have these individually pre-packaged communion elements that have a wafer and the grape juice. Uh, toward the latter part of the service, I will pray over the elements, and then I will come by and bring them to all of you in your cars. Uh, I'll also be bringing another basket around for offerings, if that's something you brought. But of course, no pressure. If you don't have one, doesn't make any difference. God's grace is free. You're going to hear me say that 15 times today, probably. So later in the service, I'll come by with the basket with communion and another basket for the offering. And then we'll have a final benediction, and then everyone is free to go on their way. Uh, I just want to share that it is a weird time to be the church. Uh, you know, I never really imagined that I'd be doing a drive-in worship service when I was in seminary. But you know what? This is pretty cool. I get to talk into a microphone really, really loud. Uh, I haven't received any negative calls from all of our neighbors, but I guarantee you they can all hear us right now. Uh, so continue to pray for Cokesbury Church, pray for churches everywhere, pray for our community. I'm sure that most of you are aware that our local area, the zip code the church finds itself in, still has the highest number of coronavirus cases of any other zip code in the state. So we have to continue to be vigilant, uh, wearing our masks, being safe, sanitizing our hands, all that sort of stuff maintaining social distancing, and once uh, it becomes possible for us to have Sunday morning worship in person again, we will make sure that absolutely happens, but for the time being, we're going to continue to offer uh, Sunday morning worship online, but then every once in a while, we'll continue to do these drive-in services until it gets so cold that me shivering makes it impossible for me to talk while I'm standing up on a picnic table. So with that, if you all would, uh, as much as you're able, bow your heads in your cars as we pray together. Lord, please restore to us in some way, shape, or form the comfort of merit and demerit, a simple system by which we can know who is in and who is out. Show us that there is at least something we can do, at least more than other people. Tell us at the end of the day there will be at least one redeeming card of our own. Lord, if it's not too much to ask, share with us a few shreds of self-respect upon which we can congratulate ourselves. But whatever you do, Lord, don't give us grace. Give us something to do, anything, but spare us the indignity of having to rely fully on you. Well, Lord, we ask for these things because we're too cowardly to confess that we actually need you. We've been spoon-fed a world that exists only if we work for it, instead of remembering that you came to overcome the world. So help us, Lord, for we are in need. And all God's people say, Amen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful, wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew in the 21st chapter, verses 28 through 32. Now hear God's word. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. The father went to the second son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And the crowd said, the first one. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. This is God's word for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Truly, I tell you, it's the tax collectors and the prostitutes who are getting into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What do y'all think? There's this guy, he's got two kids and there's yard work to be done. It's fall, all the leaves have fallen into the yard. So he wrangles his two kids out of bed early in the morning and he says to the first, hey, get a rake, start putting the leaves together. The kid jumps back in bed, pulls the cover over his head and he says, no way, dad, I'm not working for you. But later the kid changes his mind and goes outside and he rakes up all the leaves. The father also said to the second kid to go out on the lawn, rake up the leaves. And the kid says, yes, sir, father, right away. But as soon as he gets outside, he gets on his bike and he spends the rest of the day riding around the neighborhood doing whatever he wants. So which of these two kids did what the father wanted? The first, who, though the call of his bed seemed so strong, actually went out and raked the leaves or the second who though he said he would do it, actually spent the day doing whatever he wanted. Truly, I tell you, the people begging on the street corners, the economy-stealing stockbrokers, the pregnant teenagers, the squanderers of inheritance, they are all getting into the kingdom of God ahead of you, ahead of me, and ahead of us. What must we do to be saved? Jesus gets asked this question a lot. I get asked this question a lot as someone who represents him in this earthly life. What must I do to be saved? It's an interesting question, particularly for those of us habituated in a world of meritocracy, of things to do. Do we have to be baptized to be saved? Is there a certain percentage of Sundays that we have to show up for worship? What amount of money demonstrates a, a salvific commitment to the kingdom of God? How many wrongs do we have to write to wind up in the right place in the end? And that question, for some, it lingers above almost everything we do, whether it's a theological reflection or just thinking about whether or not we're a good person. And in a lot of churches, the question about what must we do to be saved is answered with a list of things to do and a list of things to not do. Preachers like me, we might speak about it explicitly, but maybe we don't. And even if we don't, it shows up in preaching and teaching. It shows up on all of our individual Facebook pages and all of our trite tweets. We implicitly affirm a whole list of expectations. 
Now, I've said it before in church that the church has become the next version of a best self-help program where people like me say to people like you, hey, uh, the mystery, it's not that mysterious. It's just something you got to do. If you want to be part of it, then you might want to write this down because this is really important. So between now and next week, I want you to work on your racism, your sexism, your classism, your ageism, your ethnocentrism. You know, you probably should stop using so much styrofoam, go vegan, gluten-free, eat locally, think globally, fight against gentrification, stop drinking so much, practice civility, mindfulness, inclusiveness, take precautions on your dates, take precautions on your dates, keep Sabbath, live simply, practice diversity, do a good deed daily, love your neighbors, give more, complain less, make the world a better place, and while you're at it, stop drinking so much. Church, friends, a list of things to do and not do. And at first glance, this story about the two kids who either do or do not do what their father asks, it seems like it supports a view of the church telling us what we can or can't do. After all, God and Christ gave us commandments, and well, we better follow them accordingly, right? Doing, then, is the end-all, be-all of a life lived in Christ. But what if that's actually completely and utterly wrong? And by wrong, I mean dead wrong. Notice Jesus tells a story about the father and the two kids. He dangles it out for the scribes and the Pharisees and even for us. And then he ends the story with a, re with a reference to the salvation of tax collectors and prostitutes. Tax collectors and prostitutes. And by doing so, Jesus seems to be saying that salvation comes not because these disreputable characters suddenly become respectable and law-abiding and even good. He doesn't say that the prostitutes give up their prostituting or the tax collectors give up their tax collecting. He just says that because they believe, they get in first. Salvation, according to Jesus here in this little parable, it comes only by belief, by faith, by trusting in someone else to do for us what we couldn't and wouldn't do on our own. But that's a problem. And the reason it's a problem is because it all sounds too easy. It sounds too simple. Is Jesus telling us that anyone can stroll through the pearly gates just for having a little faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed? They really don't have to do anything else. They don't have to right all their wrongs. They don't have to make only good choices. They don't have to be perfect all the time. That sounds a little unfair, doesn't it? I mean, what about the rest of us who have worked so hard? We've done all the right things. We've followed all the important rules. You know, people that aren't prostitutes and tax collectors. Everybody getting in for free feels kind of wrong. It runs counter to everything the world runs on, which in the end is exactly what makes it right. Because no matter how much we talk about grace in church, no matter how many times we sing amazing grace, we don't really actually like it very much because it's too free. It feels unfair. It lets squandering sons and delinquent daughters get into the kingdom for nothing, all while disregarding the rest of us. You know, people who are good, who drive to church on a Sunday afternoon to sit in their cars listening to someone talk about Jesus. So we continue to offer words of encouragement about how God loves everyone, God forgives everyone, but then, for some reason, we make it good and clear that the aforementioned everyone, they have to clean up their act before God gets into the loving and the forgiving business. 
we say things like this because we want to make it abundantly clear that church is for good people and the world is for bad people. Which only goes to show that we, sadly, have far more in common with the scribes and the Pharisees than we do with those who are getting into the kingdom of God first. We've confused the good news of Jesus Christ for the bad news of works righteousness. We've failed to see that the gospel is offensive. We failed to see it because we tricked ourselves into believing in ourselves rather than believing in Jesus. The problem here is that grace, it doesn't sell. It doesn't give us a list of things to do to fix all the disappointments we feel here and now. It's not a peloton that promises to slim our waistline. It's not a mindfulness technique that guarantees to lower our anxiety. It's not a book that ensures that we're going to be happier when we finish it than when we started. Grace works only for losers. And nobody wants to get in line with losers. No one, that is, except for Jesus. The world of winners, people like us, we invest in myriads of moral absolutes, truckloads of self-improvement, seminars, heaping baskets of do-goodery. But the world of winners, people like us, it refuses to opt in for free forgiveness because that threatens to bring in all the wrong sorts of people. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit has a knack of reminding us, that is, all of us, that we are all unworthy, that we're all up the creek without a paddle, that we're all in need of some saving, and we can't save ourselves. God's plan of salvation is that we trust Jesus. That's it. Nothing more or less or else. God has already forgiven us. God has already reconciled us. God has already raised us up with Jesus. And to make it all better, God has already thrown away the ledger against us. Our sins are nailed to the cross, and God left them there. If we want to keep believing that the kingdom of God works on works, that there's something we have to do to get God to do something for us, then we can absolutely believe that. But the only thing that accomplishes is making sure we're at the back of the line. That's not the kingdom Jesus inaugurated in his life and death and resurrection. In the end, we are saved by grace for free. We do nothing and we deserve nothing. It is all one huge and hilarious gift. And it's exactly why we call it good news. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. I don't know if you feel more like the first kid or the second kid. I don't know if you feel like you're someone who says, no, I don't want to do it, but eventually you come around. Or if you're someone who says, yes, yes, I'll volunteer, I'll volunteer. But when the time comes, you don't show up. I don't know how you feel about all of that. But the good news of the gospel is, no matter whether we're the first kid or the second kid, we still get to be in line. Even if you're at the back of the line, you still get in. That's really, really good news for people who are already convinced that they're first in line. People like us who show up to church on a Sunday afternoon sitting in our cars in a parking lot. But God has reconciled the world to himself that we might be able to feast and live life together, not because it's a requirement, not because it's something we're supposed to do, but simply because... It has freed us from all the expectations of the world and all the expectations we place on ourselves. So Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who seek to live in peace with one another, 
who desire to see what the kingdom tastes like, feels like, smells like, and everything in between. But before we are invited, it is good and right for us to confess that we have not done what we should do, that we've avoided doing what we should do. We've done things we shouldn't do. So as you're able, would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, free us from hardness of heart. Take from us all of our pride and our pretension. Strip us clean of all that makes us incapable of witnesses to your gentle love. Make us worthy agents of your grace, so that even as we wrestle with you and the world, others might say of us, well, at least they love each other. Help us, O oh Lord, to be better than we were when we woke up, simply because the kingdom demands it. Help us to see that we're already living in the light of your grace, and that makes all the difference. And with that, friends, hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, not before we were sinners, not after we were sinners, but in the midst of our sins. And that proves God's love toward us. So in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen, amen, and amen. Would you all please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we remember that on the night in which your son gave himself up for us, he was with his friends, the first and the last, the bad and the good, the denying and the betraying, the abandoning. And yet he took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks to you, and he gave it to his friends and said, take and eat. This is my body. I'm giving it for you. You haven't earned it. You haven't deserved it. And yet I'm giving it to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, Lord, we remember that your son also took a cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his friends and said, take and drink. This is my blood. I'm pouring it out for you and, the, and for the world for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, as you're gathered people here on earth, in remembrance of all that you have done and in anticipation of all that you are doing, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts and all who are here. Pour out your spirit that these things might become the body and the blood of your son, that in feasting we might be more like his body, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with each other and one in ministry to all people this day and every day. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Whether you're the first kid or the second, God in Christ has died for you. Whether you're the first kid or the second, God's death has freed you from your sins. This is the good news.